This is the strategy inside everything. I'm Adam Pirno. The strategy inside everything is the podcast for people who think for a living. If this conversation gives you an idea, leads to a question, or makes you want to push back on something you hear, go to thatsnotaninsight.com, where you can leave a message or send me a voicemail. The best and most interesting will be added to the future episodes, and I can't wait to hear from you. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Strategy Inside Everything. We had a preview of the upcoming episode and conversation last week uh, with today's guest. Uh, I'm very lucky to have the founder at Lucky Generals and the author of killer book, Go Luck Yourself, Andy Nairn. Andy, how are you? I'm very good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. And and I we were already booked, but I was lucky, like I said, to get that preview at... Uh, John Roberts of Truth Collective has a uh, regular planner get together, and I was able to hear you uh, speak and talk about the, the concepts behind uh, "Go Luck Yourself" and and luck itself, and how it's manifested in in your work and in business. So it was good to get a preview of this. Yeah, great. No, it was, it was really nice actually. It, it seems to be a universal theme, I guess. Everybody in the world could do with a little bit of luck right now. So it was interesting to get perspectives from all those guys. Yeah, I would not, I would not turn away any any good fortune at this moment. Exactly, exactly. So I want to hear your thoughts on luck, and uh, but before we do that, would you mind giving the audience a sense of um, who you are and kind of where you've been and what you've done before you co-founded Lucky Generals or founded Lucky Generals and what you're doing at Lucky Generals? Yeah, sure. So I mean, I first of all, I'll explain my where, where I'm from. I'm from. Um, a tiny little place in the middle of nowhere in Scotland. So that explains this the funny accent. Um, and I sort of stumbled into advertising. Really. I did law at university. That's what I graduated in as a lawyer. And then I kind of figured out I didn't want to be a lawyer. Um, but I did quite like that kind of, there are some similarities because really what you are doing is putting you know, a client's case forward, I guess. Um, and I, I kind of figured I quite wanted to do that in a more, um, creative environment. So I sort of, somebody recommended uh, advertising to me, I sort of stumbled into that. Um, and then I worked at agencies on, it was most, mostly in London. Um, I had a little stint at Goodby Silverstein in San Francisco, which I absolutely loved. Um, and then I came back to the UK and, and helped uh, establish an agency that had been going for a couple of years um, that was called MCBD. And I, I only mentioned that because it was, it was the place that I'm really sort of met my two partners in crime, the people that we later set up, Lucky Generals. So I had a, a good old 10 years there at this very good agency. Um, and then we made a mistake. We, we did a merger with another agency. We, we just looked great on paper and we absolutely hated it. So um, <laughs> They always look great on was, paper. Oh my God, yeah, that's right. And everybody tells you, you know, you read all the stuff about mergers and they you know, people saying oh, they never work, but you somehow convince yourself that you're going to be the ones that do make it work. Anyway, we for a lot of reasons, uh, we hated it, but it turned out to be really helpful. Like a lot of things are in life when you have something that you, you know, that is unpleasant or you don't like. We sort of used that to figure out, well, okay, if we don't like this, what do we want to do? And, and what we did want to do was start another agency that would be just ourselves, no, you know, no clients in the beginning. No, um, we didn't take any people with us. Or anything like that. We, when it was a complete blank sheet of paper, 
And, and we did that nine years ago with Lucky Generals and you know, had a very good time ever since. Yeah. Did you do that as, did you intentionally want to bootstrap it? You know, you said like, we're just going to go, we're not going to try to pull any clients. We're not going to build it around one anchor client. That's going to make us locked into something that we maybe won't like in two years. Was that what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, we did. And it was, it was mildly terrifying, I guess, because it's not the way that most people do it, I guess. Um, but I just think we wanted such a clean break from the past. Um, and we we didn't want to, we, we just didn't want to circle back to the, any of the things that we've been doing or the people we'd worked with. It just felt purer and simpler that way. Um, and so we had to do the usual thing where you have to, you know, dig your way out almost of, you know, there's all sorts of legal restrictions sort of things. So it was a bit like escaping from cold it's, you know, or the, the great escape, you know, where you, you see people t- t- tunneling out with a spoon uh, from your cell uh, and then reassembling on the outside, you know, miraculously, like you hadn't planned it. Um, and, uh, but there was, a, there was a real freshness. And, and actually, again, you know, looking back, it turned out to be a good thing because there was that clean break and it forced us to, you know, we, we had to go out and get some new clients because we'd, you know, we were already from day one, you know, eating our way through um, money and uh, waiting for the phone to ring. So yeah. we had, yeah, 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 yeah. there's no alternative. Sort of force yourself to figure it out. Yeah. Did you practice law or did you graduate with a degree and decide, you know, this, I don't know what to do with this degree. I don't really want to be a lawyer. Or did you do it? First? I never, I never practiced it. I, I finished, um, got the degree. Fun enough, I had a, I had a conversation with um, one of many lucky things to uh, return to that theme. I had a conversation with a guy called Alexander McCall Smith. He, he is now uh, one of the best-selling authors in the world. So he's like sold 70 million books or something like that. So there's a detective series, the 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 um, Ladies Detective Agency of Botswana. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so he is, you know, right up in the top league of authors, quite a few leagues and ranks above my own humble and scribblings, yeah. sadly. Yeah, exactly. So we can all look up to him. Um, but he he was my law lecturer. He, he was a um, uh, an annoyingly multi-talented person, but he, he was my <laughs> law lecturer. And uh, I started telling him I didn't really fancy doing, I didn't want to practice afterwards. And he said, well, why don't you, um, you know, he, he put it together in his mind. He said, if you like, putting a case together, but you want a more creative environment, why don't you do something like advertising? And he, um, I'd never thought of that before, but he sort of um, gave me the name of a couple of agencies that where he knew people. Um, and then what I like is that he then, so he gave me that very good advice. And then he always, he sort of took his own advice. He decided they didn't want to do law and, and then went on to do this mega selling. Also, I, also, I kind of feel like I helped him in his career. Um, is probably a little bit more than he helped me. Um, I'm gonna go uh, so. look at the books and see if he credits you in any of the. Things. Yeah, I feel I feel like I've been left behind slightly, um, but but to, he was a he was a lovely man. To Andy, thank you for inspiring my journey. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I wonder, but that's that's an that's an interesting start to the career and the idea that applying these skills in this other way or the what you learned in law school in this other way. Talk yeah. to me about naming. Lucky Generals at that time, because I'm I'm familiar with the agency from across the pond and hearing about your success, and so not maybe the founding of it, but always thinking like that's a such an interesting name. Like even then, now your book is comes out eight years, seven years after you founded the agency. 
why why that name? Well, do you know, it's it's sort of we had uh, that was somewhat accidental as well. We just liked the name, and until two days before we launched, um, we had a different name, um, and I, mean, I can tell you what it what it was actually. It was we were going to be called originally House on Fire because we liked uh, the idea. You know, the three of us we'd we'd worked together for many years. We all got on like a house on fire and we want to work with, you know, our clients and people that, you know, after that, so, as I say, that bruising encounter that we had, we wanted to get back to working with friends and people we liked and had the same values and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And we also thought there was something nice about brands, you know, the best brands you get on like a house on fire with. And anyway, all, great thinking and all the rest of it, we registered all the documents and, you know, <laughs> and then guess what? There was a terrible, terrible house fire um, uh, in the news at the time. And I guess there's probably always one of them every few months, isn't there? Somewhere around the world, and and we just realised, oh no, this is a horrible thing to, you know, just the search uh, implications of that in the in this modern world that we live in. And the first thing that people do when they want to find out about you is Google your name, and all of a sudden you're, you're being shown up with all these terrible sort of um, tragic, uh, you know, visuals and all the rest of it. Probably wasn't a great thing. Um, and so you know, we were now about to launch an agency. Uh, and didn't have a name, so that was that. That caused a bit of a panic. And then Danny, my creative partner, remembered this phrase, "Lucky Generals," which he had always wanted to. Uh, he was in a band at high school, uh, as lots of us were, and he he always wanted to call his band "Lucky Generals," and he wasn't allowed to. So he, this was his chance now to. <laughs> uh, so really, it was not much more thought than that. It was like a in in an act of desperation, but it has turned out to be one of the best things, maybe the single best thing that we ever well, did. I mean- yeah, speaking of distinctive assets, you you started right yeah. out of the box with something that nobody else was. There's no SEO battle for that phrase. You no, that's invented right. it. Yeah, we sort of kind of reclaimed it. It's an old Napoleon quote. It turns out um, somebody asked him, "What does it take to win a war?" And he said, "Just bring me your lucky generals." In other words, <laughs> people with a track record, yeah, you know, of uh, achieving success, not sort of bullshitter uh, people who talk a good game and. So we quite like that spirit, and it's it's been a great, like you say, a great asset ever since. Yeah, that's amazing. Tell me a little bit about writing the book. Where what where did you start? You know, what kicked it off? When did you say I have a book here? Well, do you know what it was? It's an interesting lead on from that last point because after eight years of you know having this now successful agency um, with the word luck in the title, I sort of realised it was a bit embarrassing. Actually, I thought we. We've never really uh, interrogated the idea of luck. I don't really know what it means. Uh, you know, as, as I've just explained, it was really pretty serendipitous the way that we came about it in the first place. So, um, and then I started finding myself thinking a lot about luck over the last couple of years, like maybe lots of us have because of the pandemic, you know, thinking about how unlucky this whole situation was. And then a lot of the other big stories of the last couple of years have been, uh, you know, involving a different sort of luck because it's about, you know, a lot of them have touched on privilege and I'm your classic old, white, straight, able-bodied man. And so a lot of those other stories have been saying, oh, I, I have been really lucky in lots of ways. And um, and so I started thinking, God, I should find out more about luck. Um, and the more I researched it, the more interested I was because I realised that none of us, you know, it's a taboo subject, isn't it, in, at least in Western culture. Taboo how? Well, we don't like to talk about it, especially, yeah, especially in the West, because it kind of, you know, if I said to you that you were lucky, you might find it quite insulting, actually, because it sort of implies <laughs> that, um, 
you're very you're not hardworking and yeah, uh, not, or talented. skilled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And and so people bristle a little bit about you know when you say um, that something was lucky. Um, but I think in our private moments we can we're maybe a bit more genuine, and we we probably admit. I bet everyone on this you know that's listening to this now can probably hopefully admit that at some point in their life they have been lucky. At least to um, themselves, yeah. At least to themselves, you know, because otherwise what we're seeing, we're sort of saying that we've been uniquely brilliant and uniquely hardworking. <laughs> sort of a bit, that sort of doesn't sort of ring true to me. So That's actually weird, um, isn't it? Yeah, that's a bit weird, I think. So it's more confident, I think, to sort of admit that luck is involved. And what I found was the really interesting thing is that there's a lot of science behind this and a lot of, you know, empirical evidence. And, and really, it all points to the fact that you can change your luck um, if you are more conscious of it, if you're more mindful of it, and that that made me really interested too. At what where did what's the source of some of that research? There's all sorts. There's um, let me think. There's some there's some research, for instance, from uh, a guy called Richard Wiseman. Mm-hmm. To get a good example of nominative determinism, that I think is it's, it's a wise man. Who is an expert luck? Anyway, he um, <laughs> he sort of got the right name for the job, but he he uh, he's done a huge study on the, the 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 subject of luck, and and he finds that uh, if I've got a second, I can tell you one of his experiments. He's he's yeah, sort of um, so he he divides people into whether you're unlucky or you're unlucky. Like, do you self describe yourself as okay. being most like an unlucky person? And then he gets them to read a newspaper. And then he asked them to count how many photographs are in the newspaper. And the people who say that they're lucky do it a couple of seconds. And the people who say they're unlucky take quite a few minutes. And the reason is that on page two, he puts a little advert. He says, um, yeah, you can stop counting um, the photographs. There's 45 photographs in this newspaper. Just tell the guy in the door, you take your money and you can go home. And what he, what he finds is that <laughs> by saying we're lucky, sometimes that means that we're just good at spotting these kind of shortcuts and we, we spot things on our horizons. And, and when we say we're unlucky, we're, it just means that we're the sort of person that um, that uh, doesn't realize that luck is waving to us. You know, let's say we're, we're very heads down focused we don't, on the We're task. not looking for the signs. That's it. We're not looking for the signs because and it, you know, it might be because we're very diligently concentrating on the task that we've been given, like in this case, counting photographs. And so he teaches um, individuals to get better at that, you know, to sort of improve their peripheral vision, if you like. And I think the same applies to organizations. You know, sometimes organizations are very narrowly focused on the task that they think they've been set. Yeah. And so I think, yeah. Yeah, I can totally see that. Or they get into, like, if you think about athletes, you know, a player... Yes. And get into a slump. And because they yeah. think they're in a slump, they stay in the slump. And it's exactly. like the best of them figure out how to mentally detangle themselves from that and say, nope, yeah. I'm going to go out and I'm going to score a goal. I'm going to, I'm going to yeah. get a hit. I'm going to turn this around. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sort of a real, exactly these things become self-perpetuating. Um, there's another great experiment actually done, I think by the University of um, Bloomborough in the States who, um, they, they do this test where they found there's a, there's a guy in Japan, whose name I forget, who was uh, present at both of the atomic bombings during the Second World War. So he he was in, I think it was Hiroshima was first, wasn't it? Someone mixed these up, but um, he was at the first bombing, basically, on a business trip, survived it, and got his train back home 
to the city that was the location of the second bombing, so it goes oh back to Nagasaki, and was there at the epicenter of that bombing and survived that too. And what's interesting is that from your reaction that you can either they, they do a test where they tell half the respondents that this is the story of the luckiest guy in history because he both skateboard. Yeah. And they tell the other half that this is the story of the unluckiest guy in history. Um, and depending on how you frame that story, you can tell it either way. And the, the big point to make out of that is quite a lot of stuff in life can either be framed as good luck or bad luck. And it's sort of helping people to see things that at first sight seem unfortunate and turning them into things that are fortunate is kind of what we do some of the times in our jobs. Yeah. And it's all about the framing because I was thinking, yeah. wow, what, how lucky he was to survive, but how unfortunate to have to witness everything around him that. Yeah, you know, that's right. Immediately see both sides, but my, my, I did to the, to the listeners, I did cover my face in horror. Yeah. It's a sort of an incredible story. Um, and, and I feel like, uh, so that's two scientific studies that, that touch on luck and kind of show how you can, you can, you can change your luck and that luck isn't just some sort of superstitious uh, thing. One, one of the things that's happened since writing the book is I keep getting, people keep giving me things like rabbit's feet and uh, sort of horseshoes and stuff like this and four-leaf clothes and it's, it's not really about that at all. Do you, are you superstitious at all? Like, does that stuff travel for you or do you, do you just put them in a drawer and say thank you? No, I probably am. I think all of us are to some degree. Um, and again, even that, the science shows that superstitions do work, although not in the way that we might imagine. So if you're if you're playing soccer and you're taking penalties, there was a study that showed that if you were allowed to um, indulge in whatever superstition you did, you maybe had one sock pulled up and one sock down or whatever, if you were allowed to do that, you scored more goals. Um, <laughs> uh, but if you were stopped from doing whatever your superstition was, you, you did actually score less um, goals because of what you were talking about earlier, this kind of self uh, fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, in and that case, it's like a placebo effect almost. It's, yeah. It is it's exactly. a mindset. It's free. Yeah, yeah. And lots of us have got these. We probably, you know, in business, if we're doing pitches, there might be little rituals or things that we strike upon, and and then when they are more successful, they become self reinforcing. We do them the next time, and then we get a bit worried about, you know, oh, we want to. We always win pitches when we're in this room or when we do this trick. Um, and then we worry if we can't be in that room, you know, we're going to be less successful. And then we are, and then we are less <laughs> successful. And then, you know, so I, I kind of, I'm really interested in the psychology of all that kind of sort of stuff. And um, I, uh, the I worked at a small agency where we had a special car, the pitch wagon. Uh, oh, amazing. Was, that was exactly that thing. It was the, it yeah. was the founders. Uh, I think it was a suburban that we would all pile into to go to the pitch. And it was like, yeah, if we were in the pitch wagon, all right, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. So it was like a, a rolling rabbit's foot. So you, yeah. you got the idea to write the book and who's the book, who are you thinking is reading the book? Like who's your, who's your ideal reader? And were you trying to, was it just cause you were full of all this research and you realized like, this is, this is an amazing collection of stories and research that, that I can frame in this interesting way or did you have, you know, did you have another goal in mind for the book? Well, my other goal was, um, so again, if we go back to two, just the beginning of the pandemic, really, and I'm thinking about luck. I thought it was quite interesting to write a book about luck that could bring some luck to other people as well. So I'm giving all the royalties to an organization that helps working class kids get a lucky break into our industry. Um, so that became quite a big thing for me. I sort of, you know, without um, 
being too profound about it. I guess it was, you know, the pandemic is one of these things that probably made us all think about what we're doing in life. Absolutely. And as, as I say, it sort of made me think, God, I've had a, much though I was feeling a bit miserable, like some of us have done at various points, I sort of snapped myself out of it by thinking, no, hold on, mate, you've had a pretty good and lucky life. Um, stop feeling sorry for yourself. Maybe, uh, maybe you could write some stuff that is helpful to people, you know, by reading the book, but also generates money for people who are really having a much worse time than you in this recession. So shut up about your, you know, put your little violin away, mate, and uh, <laughs> stop, uh, you know, feeling bad about yourself. And you're so yeah, creating, that, that, you're creating yeah, luck for uh, more people. Yeah, yeah. So I, which I found, so that's a thing again, uh, which is also backed up by lots of science. Um, this idea of karma. And I thought that, that's a good, positive way to channel um, all of this. And then in terms of who it's aimed at to read, because that, that was important because I didn't want it just to be a pity read, like that you think, oh, this guy's written a book for a charity, I should buy it and it'll be crap. But, um, you know, uh, I sort of wanted it obviously also to be a good book. So I thought it's about people, it's for people, anyone who's sort of looking after a brand. So it could be people in agencies um, or marketing People, but I guess that these days, lots of people, you know, entrepreneurs who wouldn't have marketing in their job title, but they are trying to build a brand and they're trying to grow something, and um, so it should hopefully appeal to them too. Yeah, and and understanding the role that luck has played and can play in that work yeah. that they do, because it is not all. You can follow. I mean, you can read Ritson and and Byron and do everything they say. Yeah, and you can still fail. That's it, and I think it's. You know, um, you can do all of that good stuff and you should do all of that. Because in the quote, actually both Ritz and, and um, you know, Byron Sharp and all the rest of it in the in the book. So those things are important, but um, luck is also an important part. And what happens in most textbooks, so I, I found a great stat that someone else has calculated, but only only 2% of textbooks mention luck, which I think is very telling, you know, because when you get to the case studies, and we've done it ourselves, like I've written case studies and you've, the written case studies where we sort of tell the perfect version of what happened because it's just easier that way. And then we, we write them in retrospect, don't we? But actually along the way, all sorts of dumb things happen or we have lucky mistakes or bad luck happens or whatever. And I thought it was a bit more honest to acknowledge some of those things. And, and then maybe people can relate to it a little bit more. Yeah, I know. Every case study is like, this brand had this problem. We wanted to blink. So yeah. we we made sure the most famous influencer in the world saw it and retweeted it totally coincidentally. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly, everybody's talking about it. Yeah, right, that's yeah. right. Because of us. Um, yeah, I know exactly. Uniquely because of us. And uh, so a lot of the things in the book are blind alleys and mistakes and things that we did wrong but that somehow maybe uh, made us figure out how we were going to do it. So there are much more sort of squiggly lines, if you like, yeah. you know, rather than these very neat linear processes that we read about in awards entries. Much more true, that squiggly. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. Do you, how do you think, you mentioned earlier that people might be offended if you said, oh, your luck, you know, your luck played a role in your success. How do you reconcile the concept of luck with expertise and expert standing, you know, how do you, how do you overcome that fear factor or how do you, how do you coach your own teams to accept that, you know, and own the, own the parts that we got lucky with without it being a blow to your ego? Yeah, I think it's, it's to, um, it's to watch out for the word just, 
That's the important word. So if you say that someone is just lucky, then that is an insult because then you are saying that they're not hardworking, they're not talented. Um, but um, if you take that word away, you can talk about luck in more positive terms. And, and when you appreciate how lucky you are, um, you know, again, there's lots of research that shows this in life and in work, that if you appreciate the luck that, is, that you've either stumbled upon or that you've maybe been born with, if it's a demographics, then then you're more likely to succeed if you're oblivious to it. So it's, it's, to me, it's all about being conscious of um, your luck, and which is not to denigrate someone and say, yeah, it was only down to luck. Your success is only down to luck. So um, that's what I think I try and encourage my teams to, if they have experienced a bit of luck, let's, let's acknowledge that because that will make us less likely to be complacent as well if we realise, poof, we actually got away with one there or we... We did benefit from something quite lucky, and that, that that means that you you're less likely to get big headed and, and and fall over the next time. Yeah, and I think a little a little pushback on that <laughs> I'm successful without any help from luck is not healthy. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of nice to have that as a as an ingredient to success to keep you humble. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, um, you know, there's there's been again various other research papers that show that. Um, co-workers are more likely to um, want to work with you, with people who uh, 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 express, you know, an acceptance of luck versus those people who, who deny it sort of thing. Um, so I'm hoping this book makes me really popular with all my co-workers. It's, it's, probably, too, <laughs> it's probably too late for that, I, I imagine. Um, I'm banging on about it all the time sort of thing. But uh, yeah, I feel like we, there is a humility that hopefully comes with the, the, yeah. the idea. How do you... In that same vein, how do you make space for luck? How do you how do you make sure that you are recognizing it? Yeah, as it's as it, as you're experiencing it, or, or or in the recent past versus, I think you're you're spot on in looking at some of the stories that you might have as case studies and looking back and going, oh, we got lucky here, but that might be two years or a year later when you're writing the award show entry. But how do you yeah. have a method for experiencing it as it as it's happening? Yeah, I think a lot of it is quite. It's, it's creating space is a really good, um, a really good sort of way to think about it because we can we can wait for lucky things to happen to us. You know, so that does happen. There, I suppose. Do you use the word fluke? Is that a British word? Or we'll yeah, fluke it. is a okay. So um, you know that that can just be a pure fluke. Something lucky happens to you. Well done. Um, but or you can make the lucky things happen to you. And that's really what the book is about: is proactively trying to make these things happen. And so. Things like, as I say, appreciating what you've got, taking a conscious moment to be mindful of, you know, how lucky you might be in a particular brief. Um, uh, that can be helpful. Or it can be about um, deliberately thinking about lessons you could learn from elsewhere. Because sometimes, you know, you can you can stumble on, a, on an idea by going for, a, I don't know, a walk around the park or going to an art gallery or listening to music or whatever. Um, and that might be accidental, or you can deliberately make that happen by ring fencing a little bit moment in your day and telling yourself, right, I am now going to go swimming or um, I'm going to do something completely different. And, and deliberately making those chance things happen is, is how you can maximize those possibilities. Yeah, we refer to that as collisions. You know, you're trying to yeah. make space for those weird unexpected yeah. events to happen where you get the inspiration or you, you get a new perspective on whatever you're thinking about. Yeah. I, I, and I love the way that people in, 
you know, like musicians, like if you know Tom Waits, the way that he writes songs is to have two different radios on um, and uh, different radio stations and sort of watch out for those collisions. Now, he could, he could do that accidentally. He might just by chance uh, stumble on two different pieces of music at the same time. But he, that's him deliberately trying to make the connection, um, which, which I like. Yeah, and 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 uh, that it's part of his process tells you yeah. that he really has internalized that yeah. you have to get pretty lucky to make two songs on two different devices sound yeah. like anything. Yeah, yeah. The other great phrase from the world of music I love is Quincy Jones is obviously the greatest sort of record producer. He um, he's got this phrase on his wall that says, "Let the Lord walk through the room." To really like, so he's he's very sort of scientific in his sort of approach to creating music, but but then he lets twenty percent of the time at the end to just crazy stuff to happen or luck to happen. But he does ring fence it. That's the important thing. He sort of he 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 will create the time and the expense to uh, experiment with a bunch of stuff. And so that idea of letting the Lord walk through him a lot of the time, unfortunately, in our day jobs, we. We sort of bolt the doors to the Lord, don't we? We kind of like try and keep him out because we're we're trying to just do the thing that we promised that we would do and what was on the plan. But we need to try and let that Lord walk through the room. Yeah, that's funny that you say that. It's a weird thing. Like I think of, um, you know, Wyden and Kennedy being this year over year. You've worked at, at good and and th- this consistency of excellence in creative output yeah. in thinking. And the people that I know that have worked there have said the processes there are airtight. Yeah. And it's such a funny thing that's like by locking down the processes, you actually create the 20%. It's yeah. not the opposite. Most, uh, I shouldn't say most, many other agencies say, oh, no, no, we don't want to limit yeah. things. So let's leave it a little bit more loosey-goosey. And in that way, it's like people are freaked out about just like, where do yeah. I get printer paper? And they yeah. lose a half a day and they're not, <laughs> they're not thinking I, about, they're not free so- from that stuff. It's so true. It's only because that's why I like the idea that Quincy Jones, he's so driven that when they were making Thriller, which is obviously the best art selling album of all time, you know, I think one of the amplifiers caught fire. You know, so he's very, he's not a, you know, he's not one of these people that just sort of says, oh, let's sit back and be all loosey goosey and hope that lucky things right. happen. No, he's, he's like on it and he, he can tell you, is that chorus, you know, 20% too long or does that um, drop come in 10% too? And you know, he's very scientific about all of this. But, and he does everything that was he was asked to do and they stick to the plan and they record it. And then, as you say, by doing all the things that were on the plan, did that liberate 20% of the time to do other stuff that is the more experimental stuff? And and I think again, that that's always a good lesson. You get if you're doing a shoot, then you you do shoot what you're, you know, what you're what you've promised to to deliver. Um, you make sure you've got them in the, the bag. Um but then that means that you can shoot other stuff that wasn't in the conversation that might be better. Um, but make sure you've got the stuff, you know, that you originally said that you were going to do first so that at least you can have that conversation. Yep. And then say, let's get some wilds. Let's see what, let's see what these, exactly. these guys think now that they've done, gone through this a few times. Let's see what other ideas come. Yeah, exactly. Because as you say, luck, people are scared by luck. You know, people are scared by this idea of the only time we do mention it in our working lives is usually say stuff like, let's leave nothing to chance. You know, and let's make sure that luck, that we don't leave this down to luck. You know, so <laughs> yeah, we're all terrified. Let's squash it. it. Let's squash yeah. it out of existence. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because there's it. a 50 50 chance it could be bad, Andy. Yeah. It's not yeah. always good luck, right? Yeah. And we never think about it as the, as the upside of, 
you know, let, no, let's make sure that lots of stuff is left to chance. You know? So you, you do have to sort of work with people's fears and emotions, I think. Um, How do you think we, like, what are the conditions that, that lead us to overlook good luck, you know, or, or overlook lucky breaks that are staring at us in the face? That's uh, a very good point. We, we are, it's the, it's the sort of disinterest in the familiar um, and the fact that we're all excited by new things from far away, really. Um, again, there was an experiment, I think, by the University of San Diego that was, they, they presented this new sneaker and told half the people that it had been invented around the corner. And they told half the people um, that it had been invented on the other side of the world. And it had some new sort of technology. And everyone preferred the, the one from the other side of the world because it sounded like it was cool and exotic and uh, you know, who cares about the thing that was invented in our backyard? And so many organizations have got that sort of blindness to the riches that are sitting in front of their noses. You know, and, and as we probably all know, every strategist listening to this or every creative listening to this um, will know that sometimes the answer is staring you in the face. And just yeah. people have got so blase about it that they've forgotten about it. Yeah, you know, especially for creative people when you're you're running through concepts and you write down, you know, the first day, it's always like, well, let's just get the bad ideas out. And yeah. you write 50 ideas down and then you yeah. never look back at that page because you're like, oh, yeah, that was that's the right. bad day. And then the answer yeah. is on page one, right? That's, that's right. And you circle all the way back to it. And again, human nature, you know, none of us think about our names, do we? Because it's just the thing that we've been given. But, you know, sometimes the answer is in our brand name, you know, staring us right in the face. And, um, or it might be, you know, the place that we're from, you know, none of us really grow up thinking, oh, that the, the place I'm from is cool. And someone from outside of town has to come in and say, wow, this place is amazing. Why don't I know about this? And and I think a lot that's, again, yeah. true of companies, isn't it? You yeah. Know? yeah, it takes someone new. I mean, I think that's yeah. why companies hire agencies because they want someone yeah. to come in and be like, did you know how cool your company yeah. is? And you're like, oh my God, is it? Yeah, that's exactly it. That's why I think you do need, and I know there's, you know, a good place uh, for you know, in-house you know, agencies and they can do lots of great stuff too of and they've got other advantages but I think that perspective that's that ability for us to say as an outsider wow I can't believe you've never done anything with this you know with your brand's history for instance which they might think is like um, very is going to make them feel old-fashioned you know to be able to say no that could really liberate you and make you do something cool and modern is, uh, so I like, I like that I like that role that we have as agencies of you know, almost going up into the attic and sort of discovering what is sitting there right in front of everybody. Rummaging around and seeing, yeah. what, seeing what we turn up. There's yeah. been a lot of conversation this week about Heinz, uh, the ketchup brand and the, and the signature bottle, which it's funny. The, the conversation is about the, the distinctive asset of that glass bottle. But I can't, yeah. I don't remember the last time I saw that actual bottle, but I can yeah. feel the metal cap in my hand, you know, and it's. Yeah. Um, that's really sharing. interesting yeah yeah and it's like those, gro those grooves that you've got yeah i can imagine that now yeah, exactly the shape of the right the shape of the bottle yeah and it's interesting that they people remember it on their behalf but they don't really they use it as a like an icon but they don't mm. you can't buy glass bottle Heinz anymore i'm pretty sure they yeah that's that pretty probably a decade ago I think that's right, isn't it? It was a lovely sort of maybe a bit off topic. It reminds me of that great story about the, the brief for the original Coke bottle was that it, somebody you had to be able to recognise it if somebody had broken it um, and you were it was in the dark um, and you could still tell it was a Coke bottle, which is like a brilliant 
um, brief, I guess. And, and they nailed design. it. Yeah, and they nailed it. And we still can feel that. And again, how when was the last time you had a glass coat bottle? I can't remember the last time I had one, but it's sort of, you can you can feel it in the contours and all the rest. Totally. And if I see one, I do buy it. Because I'm like, oh, yeah. I don't even drink soda yeah. that often. But when I see that yeah. glass Coke bottle, there's something so much more satisfying about yeah. it. It feels like a, yeah. a relic, you know? Yeah. And of course, if you look at Coke's history, they, their classic brand in their greatest moments have, re, have realized how lucky they are to have those assets. And in the moments where all they, where they famously you know, messed up, it's really because they've forgotten how lucky they are to have that particular product and they got seduced by research and, you know, launched a new Coke. So, and so every seven years they bring back a campaign that reuses the bottle shape and they're like, Oh yeah, that's actually really cool. And an important part of our heritage. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's right. Um, Funny. Yeah. And And of course you could probably chart the course to the CMO turnover, you know, the new new CMO comes in and goes, let's go back in history and look at what, Oh, right. We have this bottle. Let's use that. And then they go, well, we don't want to do the bottle anymore. We did that last year. Yeah, that's right. There's this sort of this um, risks with both things, isn't it? When you've got a lot of churn, there's you know there's that you know famous risk where people want to you know invent things fresh, and then if someone's been there for a long, long time, they they may become over familiar because they've maybe seen the logo or the you know the the brand character um, for for all those years, and they kind of figure we can't do anything interesting with this boring old fashioned. Yeah. And, and again, you need someone new to this. So it's getting that right balance between appreciating the old and then realizing how you can bring new expression to it. How can you build in that kind of flexibility, you know, into, you know, or what kind of role does that flexibility play in leveraging luck where you, where you're able to be a little more fluid? I think it's about, um, yeah, I mean, as ever, consumer perspective is helpful and you know sometimes uh companies are you know lose interest in things that uh, you know and get tired of things more quickly sometimes than consumers do don't they so so one of the things that we can do is bring that fresh perspective uh you know what what the client culture obviously has brilliantly is a great understanding of their products and you know all those great internal metrics yeah but but sometimes they just forget how utterly bored the rest of us you know, we do, we're not thinking about their brand all the time or their products. And so we are, we are almost never, we are almost yeah. never thinking about it. That's right. So bringing that kind of perspective of um, this interest, um, which then makes you, uh, as I say, appreciate how lucky you are to have things that if, if people are remotely interested in it. So if, if the only thing that people can think of is the, the logo um, or the name, then rather than sort of, treat yourself as being unlucky, you know, and and wanting to do something to create some higher order thought that makes people think uh, on some hugely profound level about your brand. No, you just realize that you're lucky to have a great name and a great logo. Let's just go with that and sort of uh, embrace that and turn it into something. Yeah. Well, Andy, this was, this was awesome. I'm really glad we did this. And I'm, I'm actually glad I got to see you uh, last week and uh, got to have a kind of a pre talk with you about this and hear some of, uh, some of your thinking about this, but uh, yeah, thank you so much for making time. Thank you so much. It's been really uh, good fun and interesting and I hope everybody stay lucky. Hey, Andy, where can people find number one, where's the best place for them to buy the book to maximize what you're doing? 
Well, I'm probably obliged to say Amazon because they're one of our clients. So I will certainly say you can get it on Amazon, and but pretty much anywhere else as well. Um, any any good bookshops, I, I hope to have it. Excellent. The book is Go Luck Yourself, and I'll obviously put a link in the show notes. And then where can people find you online? I'm mostly on Twitter, um, just just Andy Nairn, uh, and also um, on LinkedIn too. Okay. Well, it was great speaking to you. Thank you. I, I have a feeling my day is going to be uh, very lucky today. Now, now that you've Brilliant. put the, I hope the so. suggestion in my head, man. Exactly. I've hopefully planted those good <laughs> vibes with, with you and with everyone who's listening to this. Yeah. Thanks, then. Well, I'll take it. Thank you. Cheers. Strategy Inside Everything is produced by me, Adam Pierno. If you like what you've heard, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Actually, I have no idea if that helps or if it's ever done anybody any good. If you really want to help the show and you like what you've heard, share it with someone else you think will dig it. That's the best way to help the show and keep the conversation growing. If you have an idea, a question, or want to push back, go to thatsnotaninsight.com where you can send me a message or leave me a voicemail that will be added to future shows. Music for the strategy inside everything is by Saw Square Knowles. For more information on me, you can go to adampiero.com to learn about my books, my speaking, and my consulting practice. Thanks for listening. stories of groups are created, subverted, and destroyed. My immediate takeaway from this is like, millennials are a pain in the ass for boomers. I bet you if we went back even 2018, we would find articles where it's millennials blaming boomers for the shortage of affordable housing. On the first season, experienced strategists and researchers Farah Bostic and Adam Piano pursue the origins of the millennial myth. When did that change? Early on, there was this optimism about 100 plus million people that were going to change the world. And now the narrative is, can you believe these damn kids? How did the generation of hope become the enemy? Where do stories this big come from? And why does it matter? It's astrology for marketers, and it's about as useful. We're special, one of a kind. We're the millennial generation. In the Demo, Season 1. Available now. Wherever you get your podcasts, go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.